0: Hello, I'm Michael McMullen. This is the World Snooker Tour podcast. And I can honestly say that when I think of cold winter nights watching snooker over the last 35 years or so, there's one voice I think of above all others. And it's the voice we're going to hear now because it belongs to this week's guest, John Virgo. John, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure, Michael. Pleasure. Most people nowadays, and particularly those under a certain age, think of you from your TV work, which we'll talk about in a moment, but sum up for us broadly what your playing career was like.
1: Uh, well, it was a funny one, really. Uh, there wasn't a professional game as such, which is why I didn't turn professional until I was 30 in 1976. Uh, it was sort of the late 60s when uh, Ray and John Spencer, turned professional. And then, of course, the icing on the cake was Alex Higgins coming on the scene. That coincided with Pop Black, cover Television. And, uh, yeah, so when Alex won it in 72. It really grabbed the headlines, uh, and of course, the key moment uh, was nineteen seventy seven when the BBC decided to do the coverage of the uh, well blanket coverage, if you like, of the world championship in uh, in Sheffield. That was the catalyst for the game becoming popular, and I always think that Alex Higgins was one of the main reasons because he made it exciting, got people on the edge of the seats and uh, yeah, come 79, uh, when I got to the semi-final, I'd been a pro there for just just under three years. And,
0: uh, yeah, everything was uh, changing, if you like. And the names you mentioned there, Reardon, Spencer and Higgins, were all out of the World Championship by the semi-final stage. So only four players left in it, none of whom had ever won it before. So I'm guessing the four of you were all seeing this as a massive opportunity. It's funny, Al... It was a
1: different game then. It was a different game. I mean, for example, the Crucible Theatre was the only venue we ever went to where they had a practice table. Prior to that, you never had a practice table. Uh, And then 79, it was just a new thing. I always felt, and people think you can use this as an excuse, but I always felt in those early days, we were trying to sell the game to the public. So it didn't have the seriousness it seems to have today, you know, and... uh, That attention to detail, if you like, and uh, yeah, uh, the semi-final, I lost to Dennis Taylor. Uh, Terry Griffiths beat Eddie Charlton, and then that was the final. And then six months later, the UK, I beat Dennis in the semi-final, and Terry, who was then world champion, I beat him in the final. So uh, just did it six months too late.
0: Well, let's talk about, first of all, that semi-final. What sort of a match was it against Dennis? Might sound a strange thing,
1: you know. And as I say, we we're trying to sell the game. Higgins went out. Uh, Ray Reardon. I mean, Dennis was playing Ray Reardon. This is just as I'm feeling at the time, if I can remember it that well. Uh, Higgins had gone out. Dennis was playing Ray Reardon. And Ray Reardon, you know, was the legend of the game. And you're, and you're thinking, wouldn't it be great to play Ray Reardon in the World Championship? And Dennis beat him. Uh so, and it might seem a strange thing to say, but it just sort of took the edge off it for me, you know. Uh, and I was very confident that I could beat Dennis. Uh, but uh, those uh, two-day sessions, I don't think people realise, you know, it's like four mini-matches, if you like. And uh, I wasn't geared to it. And uh, I was trailing after the first day and was playing catch-up all the time and, and, and never got within uh, striking distance. Uh, and then, as I say, come the World Championship, six, uh, the UK Championship six months later. I got my head round what was required. You know, it was all new to us then. It, nowadays, I know players have regimes of what they do and where they go. But in those days, it was just a case of put your cue in the case, turn up at the venue, knock the balls around for half an hour, and that was it.
0: You know. The story's been told many times about the last session of that UK final against Terry, where there was a mix-up over the times. You turned up late, got docked two frames. Terry famously offered to split the prize money. And legend has it that you said, you haven't won yet. So that story's been told many times. Now, obviously, having two frames just handed to your opponent like that makes things so much harder. But there must also have been a big psychological challenge to put that out of your mind and just focus on the game. Yeah, well,
1: it's it's like that old saying that a lot of people use. Why does it always happen to me? You know, I really was feeling that way. Uh, no, it was a shock to the system. I mean, I'm 11-7 in front. First to 14, it was a three-session match. Uh, two sessions on the Friday. Uh, the final session was uh, Saturday afternoon on Grandstand on BBC. 11-7 in front, three away from victory uh and then all of a sudden i get the phone call in my hotel you know where are you you know he's supposed to be here at uh because he he said of starting at two o'clock which we had been for the purposes of grandstand they changed the start time to one o'clock that's why i and nobody mentioned it my manager at the time never mentioned it so i've dashed over there in a terrible state you know but nobody had ever been docked frames then you know this was the first time so then The double whammy was not only late and not preparing properly for the game, but then being docked two frames. And so we played two frames uh, before the interval. And uh, from 11-7 in front, in a blink of an eye, it's 11-0. And that's when Terry came in the dressing room. Uh, But it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the money. You you know, as any professional sportsman worth the salt, They want to win, you know, and I wanted to win. Uh, I came out after the interval. I managed to win the frame to take me 12-11 in front. How, how, I really don't know. I mean, my head was, you know... And then all of a sudden, I've gone 13-12 behind, and then it was like all that had just drained away from me, and I just... Well, I can't remember it that well, but I know I won 14-13, and... uh, and as I've always said, it was the worst and best day of my life, you know, because I didn't really enjoy it while I was playing. I enjoyed it after, you know, at a party at Poster's Snooker Club in Salford and all that, but it was draining, you know, the way it happened, you know, it'd have been nice to have won comfortably and, and enjoy the moment, but it was very hard to enjoy the moment after what I'd gone through.
0: But you did win the UK Championship, John, and that's one of those titles that's mm. so big that it follows you for the rest of your life. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, which is magnificent. I read your book a couple of years ago called Say Goodnight, JV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Wonderful book, fantastic read. And it was interesting reading your recollections of your experiences after that of trying to win the World Championship because Mm. you felt you were good enough to do it. There were Mm. one or two years Mm. that you fancied it. In the end, though, you never actually got as close as you did in 79. So was that a surprise to you that you never got that far again?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we can all have weaknesses, flaws. My my, my temperament was never... Great, uh, if I was playing well, my temperament was good. If I missed a few easy shots my my temperament wasn't great uh, so yeah, it was up and down a bit like that uh, if i'd have you know produced the the form I did in the snooker club, but there's hundreds of players will say that, but it uh, was good enough to be uh, a world champion, but never happened. you know, look at Jimmy, you know I mean he's never won it and uh so. You haven't got a divine right to have your name on that trophy. But uh, I did think I was good enough. But, of course, turning professional at 30, I was on borrowed time.
0: You mentioned Jimmy there. And you <coughs> actually came very <coughs> close as late as 1989 to beating Jimmy at the Crucible and getting to the quarterfinals. I don't know if you remember this. You were in I do, yeah. In the deciding yeah. frame. <coughs> with was a great chance to win the match. And then one of those great moments of sportsmanship that Snooker is famous for.
1: Yeah, I know. I... Uh I felt the red underneath my cue and declared a foul in the deciding frame. I always remember Eddie Charlton. I was walking back to the players' lounge and he went, it's up to the referee to give fouls, not you. Eddie would (laughs) say
0: that, wouldn't he? He would say that,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
0: But you remained a top Mm. 16 player into the 1990s, Mm. which was a Mm. very good achievement. When your decline came, it was quite sharp and you went down the rankings quite quickly. I'm always fascinated with players who've been at the top of the game. What it is that changes? Do they suddenly feel there's some aspect of their game that they're not good enough at anymore? Was it like that for you?
1: I think, well, as I say, turning pro at 30, so by the time I was getting into my late 30s, you know, that, just that edge goes off you. Your concentration level drops. You miss balls that uh, you wouldn't normally miss. And once you start missing those easy balls, it just is in the back of your mind. So, in other words, nothing's easy. And we always say about the main attribute you need at this game is cue ball control. And if you're giving everything to the pot, you're going to lose the white. And that's what happens. So instead of uh, consistently making frame-winning contributions, you're concentrating that much on not missing an easy ball that as I say, you stop scoring heavy and that's what happens and uh, and it just snowballs then and uh, yeah, it's hard, it's hard and sometimes you just dread going out there, you know, and it just gets in your head because it is a mind game and you've got a lot of time to think about consequences and, you know, sat in your chair, come to the table, you know, difficult shots, someone's had a bit of a run of the ball against you, you know, and uh, Yeah, it just
0: becomes hard work. It's amazing to think Hmm. that while you were still quite a high-ranked player, you were also effectively running the game. You were the WPBSA chairman. There's no way that would ever happen now. And I get the sense from any time you've spoken about it, John, and what other people say is that you did your very best, but you kind of regretted in the end that you got involved in that. Would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was the worst thing I ever did, to be honest with you. But uh, I always remember, uh, which I saw in the book, Prior to the the first World Championship at the Crucible in 1977, uh, there were 16 players going to play at the Crucible, and uh, they seeded 14 and two qualifiers, and when you consider at the time the, the players that had to play in the qualifiers, Doug Mountjoy, Patsy Fagan, Willie Thorne, myself, to be bashing against one another, to get two qualifying spots was uh, just ridiculous. So uh, a friend of mine said, well, what you do you want to do? You want to call her an extraordinary EGM, you know, uh, and get the rules changed. So that's what we did. And we did get it changed, uh, that there was only eight qualifying and uh, eight seeded and eight to qualify. Uh, and I remember the headline, Virgo's Rebels in the Day. <laughs> well, it wasn't my idea, but that was where it is. And then that gets you involved slightly in the politics of the game. So after 1979, uh, when we played the World Championship in Sheffield, and they were still discussing how many Cs they should have, because the BBC obviously wanted the top names. They wanted the Higgins, the Spencers, the Reardons to be there. They didn't want them playing in qualifiers, and I understood that, you know, and getting knocked out, so uh, they might not be there at the Crucible. So then there were omin an and R in this, that and the other, and then all of a sudden this South African player, I don't forget him, Derek Meany, who I didn't really know, you know, he was he wouldn't have been in the top hundred players, you know, put his hand up and said, Well why don't you just see the the top two, the winner and runner up? Well, all of a sudden it was seconded and passed. Well, it was ridiculous. You know, now only the winner and runner-up. Everybody else had to play a qualifier.
0: So it's one extreme to the other.
1: Absolutely. So Del Simmons, who was very involved at the time with uh, John Spencer, Ray Ridden and Alex Ian, he rang me up. He said, we can't have this. This is ridiculous. And, I, and it's not good for the game. So we decided to have, uh, form a company called PSA, Professional Snooker Association. Anyway, it went to uh, a board meeting. And in the end... World snooker saw sense you know the board which was rex williams uh and then we said no that's ridiculous to just have the winner and runner up so they went back to the eight i mean now it's 16 16 to qualify then it was eight and and eight to qualify and as i say i've now got involved with the politics so then they suggested that i should go on the board it seemed a natural transition but uh It's very hard and I think one of the big problems with the game at that time because all of a sudden it was becoming very popular and people who said they'd never be a professional, you know, amateurs who I knew, everybody wanted to turn professional. There was money coming in the game, it was on TV and everything else. And you finished up uh, the tail wagging the dog in a way, you know, because unlike golf or other... uh, sports, you can't just send them away for four days to Portugal or Spain to play qualifiers it's a very unwieldy thing to run qualifiers at snooker which is why they have got go uh, Castle in Blackpool with 20 odd, t- well it's costing a fortune just to run the qualifiers uh, and I got involved in that and yeah it did take my mind and, and my attention off what I should have been doing was playing snooker, as I say turning pro at 30 uh, I could have done out uh, I could done without those distractions but I did it for the game I love the game I still love the game with a passion so I regret it but if it changes it slightly and give people a chance then uh, yeah that that's okay
0: Around that time, you were also developing another sideline, not so much off the table because it still involved being on the snooker table with a cue in your hand. You started doing these impressions of other players, which became a big hit and got shown on the BBC. Now, that was a thing, wasn't it? When you turned pro, part of the deal, because you were doing so many exhibitions, because as you say, there weren't many tournaments, you had to cultivate this other side and you had to almost have a cabaret act almost in addition to your snooker ability to make a living out of it.
1: Yeah, well, when I first turned professional, I mean, the only guaranteed work that you got, uh, like Ray Raiden had done, John Spencer, and a few other professionals, you get a holiday camp circuit in the summer. Well, believe me, the holiday camp uh, circuit, uh, at Butlins, Pontins, wherever it was, the tables are not very good. I mean, the cushions are basically there to stop the balls falling on the floor. So you needed to entertain the people, and that's how you work out the trick shot routine, a bit of a as you say, a cabaret. Uh, but, but that was your bread and butter, if you like, the exhibition circuit. You know, when you think there was only two tournaments a year and there's a few invitations. I, I always laugh because the year that I got to the semi-final of uh, the World Championship and then later on that year, won the UK, the following January, I didn't get an invite to play in the Benson Hedges Masters. You know, that was the way it was. Uh, And maybe my face didn't fit. You know, as I say, Virgos, Rebels, that sort of Mm. tarnished my name a little bit. But if I did it for the right reasons, I have no regrets for that. But uh, yeah, with regards to the impersonation. And of course, what happens in life that you do things and you don't realise at the time what effects it's going to have on the rest of your life. Because when I'm now getting near the end of my playing career, I get a phone call from the BBC asking me what would be interesting doing a a snooker quiz show. And it was basically because they'd seen those impersonations and said, well, he could have a bit of fun with those on the show. And that's how it happened.
0: This was Big Break, which started just over 30 years ago, I think. And for anyone who doesn't remember it, let's be clear about this. This wasn't something that was tucked away on a weekday evening on BBC Two. This was prime time at the weekend on BBC One getting audiences of maybe 12, 13, 14 13.9 million 13.9 million, it A phenomenon. Yeah.
1: Funny enough, uh, I always remember uh, it started, uh, it took the place of, or it filled the slot of Question of Sport on a Tuesday night. And immediately, it was getting more viewers than Question of Sport. And then you're right, then they moved it to Saturday night. And uh, the viewing figures were unbelievable. And uh, I always remember someone said, oh, you, you, you won't be able to go anywhere now. And I thought, well, what do you mean? I'm a snooker player. People know you're in this and the other. And I remember going to uh, Thorpe Park in Surrey with my daughter, who was about six or seven at the time, for a day out. And uh, a coach pulled up with all these school children, and they all come running over because they'd watched it on the TV, you know, we were having tea on a Saturday night. Well, we had to to leave, I mean, he was like being a pop star. It was amazing, the popularity of television. I also thought the players who came on were superb, and it gave them a an opportunity to, to show another side of them rather than the serious snooker player, you know, and Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry, Tony Drago was unbelievable on the show. Darren Morgan, he was one of the best on Big Break. You know, I, I mean, I could really, obviously, Jimmy and Ronnie and everybody else, but uh, it, it was a great outlet for them, and it was great for the game. And, uh, yeah, and all of a sudden, from nowhere, I've got another career.
0: And that was something that was still related to snooker, obviously, but it led you on to other things that had nothing to do with snooker at all. You were yeah, in yeah. panto and all sorts Pantomime. of things. You could never have imagined when you no, started playing no, snooker no. as a kid in Manchester that it was going to no. lead to this sort of thing. Salford, by the way. Oh, sorry. Not Manchester, Salford. Just to yeah. clarify, yeah. <laughs> Greater Manchester, let's say.
1: Well it used to be Lancashire. Right. You know, that's one of my gripes, you know, it used to be a Lancashire lad, you know. They've yeah. redrawn the boundaries, I think. Yeah, though, if you sing is. a song I'm a greater Manchester lad, it doesn't sound too good, does it? <laughs> <laughs> You and McCall be turning over in his grave.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but tell me about that, John, things like Panto and just appearing on light entertainment shows that had nothing to do with Snooker. It must have been a surreal experience.
1: It was surreal and, uh, you know, obviously I've had many joyous moments in my life, you know, but those 10 years of big break pantomime and particularly working with Jim Davidson was just a laugh a minute. You know, you couldn't wait to get up in the morning and go out and go to the BBC studios or at Christmas go down to the theatre. It was great, it was great and uh, unfortunately, as we all know, eventually memories are all you've got. But wonderful, wonderful memories, wonderful times, working with people like Victor Spinetti, a Shakespearean actors. some of the stories you'd... You know, it was just... It was just opened my eyes to another life, which... But the bottom line is, without Snooker, it would never have happened. And that's why, as I say, I still love the game, and it's opened so many doors...
0: And this is all before we even talk about what has been the mainstay of your television career, which is commentary itself, which you've excelled yeah. at. And that yeah. I don't know anybody who doesn't enjoy listening to you over the years, John. So how did it come about? Well,
1: hand on heart, if I'm being honest, you know, which I like to be honest, I think because I was on the board, you know, I think that was a, a little in, you know, thinking, well, he's on the board of the association, we'll keep, you know, we'll keep them sweet. And uh, I was asked to do a three-day trial, uh, which I was so pleased with the opportunity. Uh, Anyway, after the third day, the the producer at the time came up. He said, how are you enjoying it? I said, yeah, loving it. He said, well, we're enjoying your work. He said, the only thing to remember, we've already got one Ted Lowe. So basically, I was doing an impression of Ted Lowe, wasn't I? You know, oh dear, and all that. (laughs) So... Basically, I just raised it up a notch. Peter Alice always used to say to me, I love your work, John, but don't get too excited. You know, but I said, Peter, that's the way you do it. That's the way
0: I'll do it, you know, and... Uh, but that's what people love about you, John. The yeah, excitement yeah. and the passion. And there's never been any doubt about how much you love the game. It comes across so much in yeah, the commentary. Yeah,
1: and, 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 and that passion isn't made up. That passion is genuine. I mean, if I'm watching a match and it gets exciting, I'm going to go with it. And I want people to come with me on that journey and... Uh, yeah, so everybody has their own style, you know. But I've loved every minute of the commentary and, you know, we've had heartbreak. You know, Jimmy White, I mean, it's well documented. He's one of my dearest and closest friends, you know. So I've had to sit in the commentary box when he's lost those finals, you know. And it's it's a hard thing to do when one of your best pals is really going through the mill, you know. Uh but great moments. Uh, Dennis and I commentated on Ronnie made, when he made the maximum in 5 minutes twenty seconds. What a thrill that was. What a thrill, you know. So, yeah, great moments. And, uh, yeah, loved every minute.
0: You mentioned Ted Lowe there. Now, a lot of people might not know who Ted was, but to an older generation, he was the original Snooker commentator. yeah. yeah. And a legendary voice at the very time when Snooker was starting to yeah. really take off. You knew him very well, John, so tell yeah. us about him. Well, he didn't profess
1: to know much about the game. But what he did, he, he added the colour. I mean, he'd come in the dressing room and say to a player, oh, uh, you're married, yeah? Well, name of your wife, how many children? And, and that's what he'd say. Well, he comes from Grimsby and he's married and he's
0: got two children.
1: And that's as far as he would go. Now he got stats... All over the place. That was what we
0: needed, though, at the time, John. Someone to just introduce the public to the game. Just a gentle introduction, yeah. Yeah.
1: I always remember the first time I worked with him. And uh, like anybody who uh, starts commentating for the first time, you you know, you're not as succinct as you used to be. In other words, you you start going down a line and you just keep going and you keep going, you know. So, in other words, you talk too much. And I kept looking over at Ted. And I thought he was asleep. He's not said a word. He's opened the frame up, and now I'm he's going to play this, he's going to play that. So anyway, that night, when I got back to the, uh, the hotel room, I thought, oh, I'll put the snooker on, the highlights, see how I sounded, you know. Well, he never heard me, because he knew when the editing would be done, so it'd be the opening of the frame, he'd miss all the bit in the middle, and when he got down to the last red and the colours, that's when Ted came in. Well, if he pops out. <laughs> <laughs> so all mine was wasted. I learned a lesson there. But I love Ted. Uh, an absolute gentleman. And that whispering Ted Lowe uh, just added the theatre that Snooker wants to be, needs to be, and is.
0: Let's come now, John, to what I call the quickfire round, where I throw a few fun questions at you and you just give a brief answer, whatever comes into your head. Favourite movie?
1: Oh, favourite movie? <laughs> True Romance, off the top of my head.
0: Best holiday destination you've been to? Uh, I like Spain. The best you ever played in a match?
1: Champion of Champions. Uh, I beat Dennis 5-0 and I think every frame I made a break over 90.
0: People think Champion of Champions is a recent thing. There was actually a version there of was, way yeah, back yeah. When, yeah.
1: Unfortunately, I got beaten in the final by Doug in the, in the odd frame. And uh, the the promoter never got never paid us. Those were the days. Yeah,
0: that was a familiar story back then. Was for me. Yeah. I won the. You won I the won league the first, thing, didn't you?
1: Yeah. Uh, Premier League yeah. snooker. Yeah. Yeah. and never got paid. Yeah,
0: I remember that one.
1: How am I still here? <laughs> Contributions, please. Two. <laughs> yeah.
0: Favorite food.
1: Favorite food. I like a curry. I've got to be honest with you. If I don't have a curry once a week, I get sort of withdrawal symptoms.
0: And musical tastes?
1: Well, uh, I love... uh, One of my favourite bands, Jethro Tull. In actual fact, uh, I had a phone call from uh, Ian's son, Ian Anderson, who is Jethro Tull, James, and they're doing a book, and he's asked me to do a contribution in the book, so that's nice. I love Jethro Tull, but obviously I was brought up with the Beatles. You know, they were very important... Uh, yeah, so uh, that type of music, Roy Orbison, you know, I just love all kinds
0: of music. I mean, even Al Jolson, I loved Al Jolson. Moving on then, John, and this is a very broad question. What do you think of the modern game?
1: Fantastic. I love it. Uh, I mean, I know, uh, n- not that I've seen it, but I've had vibes of people, uh, Judas made Judd Trump has made one or two comments about what I've said to people. Uh, not that uh, Judd and I have a problem. I mean, I see him and, and uh, you know, what people say, oh, did you see what Judd said about you? And all that. Well, I, I, I don't read the Twitters and, and this and the other. I just don't want to lose the identity of the game. And I understand that some people don't want to be wearing dress suits and bow ties, but I think it is an essential part of the game. Uh, so, yeah, I've other tournaments where you don't wear waistcoats and bow ties, but let's pr- try and protect the majors, you know, if, if, if only for that reason, because there's something about it, that dress code, that defines us from other sports people and, and, and defines the game of snooker for me. Uh, I know we want to appeal to a broader audience. Uh, I, I take that. But majors, please, keep it
0: as it is. Because it's what people expect. Your great pal Dennis Taylor was on here quite recently and we discussed all this with him. And what we were saying was that there may be a view out there that there's too much talk about nostalgia in the game, but this era that we've discussed here, John, where guys like you and Reardon and Spencer and Higgins and Taylor himself, of course, were getting things started in the 70s, if it wasn't for that era, we wouldn't have the wonderful game and the great circuit and all the money and attention that we have today. So it's important to remember where we've come from as a game.
1: And every every sport needs a bit of history. And uh, the the funny thing is, I mean, when I'm... Uh, doing exhibitions or doing after dinner speaking you know I think three main ingredients to the success of snooker at the very start I mentioned pop black colour television and Alex Higgins and when I mention the name Alex Higgins I always get a round of applause so people remember him people remember him fondly you know and Alex could have a little bit of a rumpus at times but people remember him (laughs) now but he was one of the integral parts he if you're talking about building up an audience that's what he did he he got people watching who were probably not interested in snooker because he got people on the edge of the seats and thank goodness from Alex we got Jimmy and from Jimmy we got Ronnie and that's the legacy that people leave and hopefully one day Whether there'll ever be a a player as talented as Ronnie O'Sullivan or not, I don't know. But then we said that about Alex, and we've said that about Jimmy. So hopefully there is someone to carry the mantle.
0: Who's the greatest player of all time?
1: Ronnie O'Sullivan with no doubt in my mind, whatsoever. Uh, The fact he can do it with either hand is just amazing. But I do a lot of shows with him, and uh, if anyone, anyone, and I... I can only liken Alex Higgins to him. Treats the game as an art form. Ronnie O'Sullivan does that when he plays. It's like a, a genius at work. And it's not all about potting the blues, smashing the reds everywhere, pinpoint position, pot a red nudge. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example, which only snooker players will appreciate this. I do quite a lot of shows with him. We played an exhibition in a snooker club in Arbroath, it was packed. Very heavy atmosphere, damp. You pot the black, hit the reds. You'd be lucky if two reds came out, no matter how hard you hit them. Well, he potted the black, went into the reds, nudged one out, potted the red, nudged another red, get on the black, and made a maximum. The greatest break I have ever seen in my life. Heavy conditions, couldn't open the balls, and it was just, well, I just, like all the audience sat there, jaw dropping and that's what Ronnie also women's got and I've never seen the like of it ever in my life
0: I think the best way to live your life is in a varied way you've had your career as a player commentator you've done all these exhibitions all the other entertainment stuff that we've talked about and I really sense you've really enjoyed it all over the years and continue to you've just had great fun
1: had a ball I mean look you're a kid you know you go in the billiard hole you know and at that time, as I say, there was no professional game. And, you, and, and if somebody had said to me then, look, you're going to travel the world, right, playing this game or being involved in the game, well, you'd have just laughed at them. And the fact that I've done that is just uh, been a joy. And, yeah, and, and it's all down to snooker. Who'd have thought, wonderful game, wonderful people in the game, And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure.
0: And how is life now, John? You spend most of your time in Spain these days. Yeah, we
1: decided to uh, move to Spain, get a bit of sun on my back. I thought, well, you know, I'll still be able to come over for gigs and what have you. And then, of course, timing as usual for me. Covid set in, so it's not been as easy as I thought it would have been. But hopefully we'll get back to normal. But uh, yeah, I miss England, obviously. Or the UK. I mean, and I know, Michael, you're Irish. Dublin's my favourite city in the mm. world. Uh, so I, I miss all that, but I just like that bit of sun on my back. And also, you can have a game of golf in December.
0: <laughs> well, you certainly can't do that. In the, well, you can in the UK, but it's not a great deal of fun. And Ireland as well. And the racing as well. You're still into that?
1: Love the racing. I had a result the other day. I had two exhibitions booked uh, for Cheltenham Week which I was dreading. Anyway, they've been put back till September, so I'll be able to watch Cheltenham every day. Love it, love it, love it, love it.
0: And we've loved listening to you, John, over the years. And I really do mean that. I think I speak for a whole generation of people who were growing up in that 1980s era that... You're the voice that's been there throughout that whole time and it's a voice that really does carry a lot of significance for us and I think everyone is very grateful for your contribution to the game which well, continues
1: today. I was glad of the opportunity and as I say, it's not been work for me cause I, because I love the game and, and, and like all the players, you'll see them in the players' room. You know, you all sit round, you all give an opinion what shot you should play and, and that's
0: basically what I'm doing in the commentary box really. It's been wonderful hearing you again today on the World Snooker Tour podcast, John. Thanks so much for joining us. Michael, pleasure. Now, with the Crucible just days away, we're going to take a break while the greatest snooker show on earth is going on in Sheffield. But we'll be back after the Championship to round off the season with a few more treats. Don't forget to keep checking out our bonus content, the 147, rounding up the week's snooker headlines in 147 seconds, out every Tuesday. But for now, enjoy your World Championship And I'll see you on the other side. Bye-bye.